Hey, listeners. Today's episode features mature content. If that's not your thing or you have kids around, why don't you skip today's episode? But otherwise, enjoy the episode. From Rixie, this is Frameform, a show about movies, moving, and everything in between. I'm Hannah Weber. I'm Jen Ray. And I'm Claire Schweitzer. Hello and welcome back. We're here. It's another Wednesday. We're glad to be here and talking to you through your ears. Today we're going to look back on some dance film history. We're going to be looking at the dance film artist, creator, entrepreneur, Amy Greenfield. As we talk about current events, trends, everything in between throughout the show, we also want to, you know, serve as an educational platform, honoring other dance film artists from the precursors of where we are now in the digital age of dance film cinema. Looking back, I know earlier this season, we were talking about Maya Darren, as well as some other few artists. If you want to pause right now, go ahead and listen to episode one and learn about Maya Darren. But today we're totally looking at a very different artist, a little bit later in time, 60s, 70s, 80s to early 2000s, and highlighting her work and her dance film autorism, we could say. Absolutely. Before we jump into that, I want to know what you guys are watching. What have you been up to this week? I've been so busy this week that my watching has been a lot of passive watching or listening. I, I hate to admit it, but I watched the home edit. I watched every episode. I played it in the room while I did my household chores and other remedial tasks. What is the home edit? I don't know. Oh, wait, I know what this is. This is the new thing on Netflix. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And I have like really mixed feelings about it because in some ways it's like very satisfying to see the organizing, but I am tend to be more of like a frugal person and a minimalist. And I'm looking at this like, wow, this is a very specific class of society that's on this show that's like, I just have so much stuff. I can't bear to open my cupboard and put it in order. And I need to pay people to buy more <laughs> boxes to put my stuff in because I can't think for myself. So, I mean, that's just like my cynic coming out. But at the same time, it did help me optimize a couple systems in my home. And I do see the value in tidying up hashtag Marie Kondo and things like that. It's it's a valuable thing, but it can get really extreme. Like it also shows your values. Like when someone has mm -hmm. a huge room just for makeup and they don't even know what they have, it's like that stuff's going stale before you can even use it. It's just yeah. not smart. Yeah. And when yeah. you do use it, it's like to the point where you're basically brushing bacteria and rash on your face. <laughs> yeah, and not so glam when you really think about it. Exactly. So anyways, have you guys been watching anything a little more intellectually stimulating? I actually watched a really interesting movie lately. And it, I got to say, it's one of those movies that makes me so thankful to have collaborators like you two who are on it. And uh, the movie is called Shirkers. And it's also on Netflix. And it's a movie from uh, Singapore. And a, it's a documentary that looks at 
a filmmaker's process of making her first movie, which was one of the first independent films made in Singapore, and how her um, film, one of her film teachers advised her in making the process uh, or in making the film. And then once the film had wrapped, the teacher um, all of a sudden disappeared and took the film footage with him. No. Yeah. So um, that's awful. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was one of those things where, you know, someone back decided to back out of a project at the last you know possible moment and then just kind of took it down with him. And it definitely made me count my blessings a little bit and um, or not a little bit, a lot. <laughs> and also a great, great reminder to to check in, check in with people every once in a while. Totally. totally. We got your back, Claire. Yeah. <laughs> I got your back, Hannah. We got each other's backs. Interesting. I I went to my parents' house this weekend, this past weekend, and um, we watched a new, I guess, commentary video. I don't know what to call it. Commentary film that recently was released on HBO. I'm always watching HBO. I can't. <laughs> I can't get enough. Um, I don't blame you. It's called Coastal Elites, which is five five monologues, or they call them rants, or people just kind of dealing with the times right now. And it's got a great cast, Bette Midler, Dan Levy, Issa Rae, Sarah Paulson, and then this this other chick who was in Booksmart. And I thought it was pretty clever for a film that was, you know, written and recorded during, you know, COVID. You don't see many, you know, films that are like that quickly, you know, that quick of a turnaround being made during this time. You know, a lot of productions went on pause where this one was like, all right, how do we work around it? And they all, they all address the camera. I, I mean, not as a camera, but it's like as a person or as a laptop in front of them and they're zooming in. Honestly, it was all a commentary about what is going on in the world. It was very, very, very political. I thought it was entertaining. I wouldn't recommend it to everyone if you are interested in monologues or just that kind of I don't know mode of filmmaking I definitely say give it a watch my parents my mom was like wow that was a downer and then I told her <laughs> like well what if it it's like think about it it was made during this whole thing happening and it's kind of cool and my dad was like yeah totally like I see that for sure but it was definitely a, a f- weird uh, Saturday night pick <laughs> Like, were you expecting an upper out of this? Exactly, right? And like, well. <laughs> I'm a big fan of satire, so I definitely think I'll see it. But I think that the fact that it was formatted the way it was made it possible to have that quick turnaround. Exactly. You know? It's just a matter of exactly. And helps to be a coastal elite and be able to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's funny the the term coastal elite on there because people are just... You know, you see that they're kind of like wealthy in some kind of way, the way that they're put into the the space that they are in, as in their home and what they're ranting about. But it is what it is right now, you know? Right. 
Definitely want to see it. Totally. I'll, I'll be checking it out, too. As we talk about other things, Claire, this was your pick, your idea you, that you brought to the table when we were first discussing the show and creating a, you know, a set list of what we're going to talk about throughout the season. What got you to Amy Greenfield? How did you find her work? How did you become interested in what she has created and has given to the dance film world? Well, before I answer that, I actually wanted to start off um, this little deep dive into Amy Greenfield's work with a question for both of you. And that question is, what does it mean to be a dance film artist? Like, what roles does the term dance film artist encompass? Well, to me, I mean, I think dance film in general, as we've discussed before, it is a mode of filmmaking. It's not just it's not a genre it's just a different way of creating work but specifically instead of dialogue being used we're expressing our emotions our feelings through the body and I think that's what is what makes dance film stand out the most I wouldn't just say it's dancing it could just be what is the body doing which I think people when they see dance as the title, there's a stigma of like, oh, no, there's going to be a lot of choreography. I'm not going to get it. It's going to be over the top like a musical. But it's not always like that. It picks up on the subtleties. It picks up on the body language. There's a lot more to it than just choreography. Totally. I would I definitely agree with that. And that um, and Amy Greenfield is such a good example, as we'll see through this episode of what Hannah's talking about, for sure. I also think that Amy Greenfield's a good example of someone that's a really dynamic dance film artist. Like if she were a dance film performer or a star or like an on-camera figure or someone we're used to seeing in front of the camera, that has a different meaning than someone like Amy Greenfield who has curated, who has produced, who has written, who has really seemed to have, like her artistry is, and I find this kind of, akin to how I feel uh, personally, because I don't really make films that much anymore. I'm really more focused on the curation and education aspect of dance film. And I definitely can can see that through her work, just that desire to focus on education as well as experimentation with the films themselves. What both of you guys are saying are um, very much reasons that I decided to focus on Amy Greenfield's uh, today. Uh, because while someone like Maya Darren may have laid the groundwork for, I guess, what we know as screen dance today, um, Amy Greenfield, to me, is really responsible in keeping that alive and expanding any kind of notion of dance film practice to include uh, not only writing and really interrogating her own work, but also expanding the form to others. Yeah, again, one of the reasons I really wanted to focus on her today is that I feel that she's the bridge between the early days of someone like Maya Darren working as an independent artist to what we see today, where we have artists who very much wear many hats and think about the work that they do in many different ways. So um, first of all, before we get into this episode, I do want to say that, first of all, if you Google Amy Greenfield, if you go into Google and you Google Amy Greenfield, you don't get a whole lot of information. It's really hard to find 
sources for or like a dedicated area to her work specifically. There is a book that I'm using um, to source most of my information from, as well as an article that's published in a book by Robin Blates. Both pieces of material were written by Robert Holler, who has been married to Amy Greenfield since 1980. So he would know. And I this is not an unbiased completely measured source of information. So I just want to throw that off at the top of the show just to get some clarity out here. But for someone who knows Amy Greenfield very well, there's a lot of insight that you maybe wouldn't get in a normal in a normal source. And specifically, we have the um, the privilege of being able to look at her or to be able to look at her work from an outside eye, in essence, while she's still making it. Whereas Maya Darren's really speaking from her own world with about a whole lot of, or at least contemporary, um, oversight. Okay, kind of a brief bio of Amy Greenfield. Um, she was born in 1940, not 1950, as her Wikipedia page says. Wikipedia is wrong. But she was born in 1940 and grew up, like many children during that time, going to the movies. And one movie that she uh, was very profoundly affected by when she was growing up was The Red Shoes. Now, I think that this is a film that is on many best of dance film lists. And it's one of those dance films that beautifully kind of like touches that line between sort of like the more commercial musical realm and like the more experimental realm. There are people from both camps who adore this film. And fun fact, uh, I think Martin Scorsese actually watched this film on repeat when he was making Raging Bull because of the you know, visceral nature of the dance sequences. So she watched um, a lot of Michael Powell directed films like The Red Shoes and uh, The Tales of Hoffman. And The Tales of Hoffman in particular uh, left a really a solid mark on her when she was younger because her actual quote is, all that stayed with me of the Tales of Hoffman was a feeling of chaos, darkness, mystery in an unreal world I wished was real. And she specifically points to this one moment where there's a character who is a male character who is played by a woman in the film. And for those of you who don't know the film, The Tales of Hoffman, it um, follows this. It basically follows the plot of the opera, which I won't lay out here. <laughs> it's like, like many operas. It's very long and very detailed and lots of characters who probably don't belong there in the first place. But there's one character who is a male character played by a woman. And in her final appearance, she is presented nude and painted gold. And uh, Greenfield noted this transformation was sort of like a revelation of this character's body as art, a sensual yet otherworldly revelation of the power of art to transcend loss and death. Considering she was saying this when she was or thinking this when she was an early teenager was shows a sense of... <laughs> Wisdom and a sense of thought beyond her years. And this was like the 1950s, too. And so, like, you know, any kind of, you know, any sense of liberation was probably kept on the down low at that point in time. <laughs> so she eventually went to Harvard University um, and primarily studied English and poetry and then um, went to New York to study dance. And she actually appeared in several films before she actually started making her own films. She um, choreographed a, a few um, and also appeared in one and appeared nude in a film. And she didn't exactly have the best experience working on this film. And we uh, discussed this at length last week. If you think of perceptions of the nude body, a lot of them tend to be presented in very 
very sexually oriented, borderline pornographic ways. So her instruction from this one director was to just dance wildly in front of a camera. Again, like do some moves in front of a camera kind of uh, <laughs> kind of dancing. And she felt that she didn't like this experience. And first of all, didn't like someone else controlling her nude body on camera, but also felt that the final product didn't capture the feeling of her moving in an adequate manner. So this was something that informed a lot of her work later on. But film was a medium that Amy felt was unexplored, especially when it came to the dancing body. So she actually decided to start making her own films where she would be the director of the filmic action. So she created a film in around 1969, 1970 called Encounter, which unfortunately is not available online, but features uh, very quick cuts in between action that's somewhat hard to distinguish, but captures the movement in the frame in a very kinetic fashion. Now, like many underground artists in New York in the late 60s, she was showing some of her work at these sort of loft warehouses. And um, apparently Dustin Hoffman was at these loft warehouses too. So um, she's got some kind of Hollywood cred there. But at one of these showcases, she got the attention of a very confused, but very intrigued, this is literally in the book. He was confused yet intrigued about what he saw. A very confused yet very intrigued Hillary Harris. So I'm not sure if either of you have seen uh, Hillary Harris's Nine Variations on a Dance Theme. I have now that you've shared it. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen it a few times before uh, back, in, back in the day of the school days. So... This film is this is a film. If I ever teach a workshop, I always show this film because on one level, it's a incredible demonstration of all the different ways that dance can be captured on films. So um, the film itself is essentially Harris filming this dancer, Betty DeJong, who danced with the Paul Taylor Company for a long period of time. And it's him using different um different shot types, like filming it from wide, filming it mid, filming it extreme close-up, and different um, camera movements. And he films this variation nine times. It looks like he's made five, nine different films. It's like a video textbook. Exactly. It's like a little, like it's like a sampler in a way of like different approaches that you can take with, um, with filmmaking. But he was intrigued with her work and he decided, and they eventually uh, decided to collaborate on uh, several films. So another person who saw potential in a Amy Greenfield's work was actually the mother of Maya Darren. So keep in mind that Maya Darren, even though her output is very well known among the dance film scene, there isn't a lot of it. And she had a very short career. Uh, she actually died in 1961, the year before Amy graduated from college. But her mother was actually so taken by Amy's work and felt that Amy's mindset or Amy's artistic intention was so similar to that of her daughter's that she apparently gave Amy a bracelet um, as a token of appreciation for that work and for the potential of that work. Which is so crazy. And I think it's also worth noting that um, the progression of any kind of art, especially 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 when it comes to dance and especially, especially when it comes to dance film doesn't operate on a linear trajectory. Um, I think that 
there's a lot of uh, people who link um, Maya Darren to to Amy Greenfield and try to draw direct links between them. But there aren't really a whole lot of tangible ones out there. Like, I think Amy Greenfield had only seen Maya Darren's films once by the when the, at the time that she made her first film. Um, what she had had seen was a bunch of avant-garde films that had been influenced by Maya Darren. Yeah, I when I was watching Amy's work, I was seeing definitely some avant-garde experimental filmmakers that I used to study in school that were directly drawn from them. I, it's funny that you say that because I was like, I literally wrote them down. And then when I went through your timeline of notes, I was like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> it, it just has that, I wouldn't even say the aesthetic. It just has all of the characteristics of like an academic screen dance work that is like, 100 percent investigating movement it definitely has that vibe and these things are certainly not linear it's almost like a like a like a three-dimensional web like it's not even when we talked about this with that brooded it's not quite roots to branches because that's too clean right it's more of a web that goes back and forth in time and people encounter things at different times so it's really in- important to like, have these sorts of conversations and we try and comb through those nuances a little bit more instead of just grouping people together. Yeah. And it always, you know, there it always remains that there's so much of that web that remains uncovered. There's still so much that hasn't been explored fully. So yeah, so it, it's tough to really draw a direct link from Maya Darren to Amy Greenfield, especially since still at this time, those films were not readily available and the opportunities to see those films were few and far between. And I think at some point Amy did realize that and that was really influential to some of the curatorial work she would do later on. But before we get into that, uh, let's actually get into some of her films. So the first film that I actually want to talk about is Transport. So Transport is a film that shows a lot of people doing, I guess if you were to try to attach any kind of dance styles to this, you'd say this is something akin to contact improv. So lots of weight sharing, lots of lots of people being picked up and lots of people being uh, carried around and like different points of contact. And according to Holler's book, this was a film that came out of a lot of influences of the late 60s and early 70s. The Dead of Vietnam, poetry from one of her old teachers and the postmodern experiments with trust to give yourself totally while being listed by another and the airborne astronauts of moon exploration. So what do you guys think about this film? Like, what stands out about this film to you? I feel like it's a timeless film. And it very clearly, as I said before, has those characteristics of being more of an academic-rooted film, I feel. Um, One dead giveaway for that is, like, the sound score. Like, when the music is that unpleasant, like, I've been having migraines. I literally thought I was having a migraine when I played this. Like, not not to, like, be too woe with me, but I was just, like, genuinely confused. I was like, is that the sound score? And I paused it and went, oh, okay, that's the sound score. And I think that all these elements play together to make something that is very um, informative about what we can do with the camera. And I just love all the, considering this was the 70s, like, the fact that there was really handheld camera and that it looked 
the content was was timeless, but the aesthetic was so 70s, which I love. Like even just the coloring and the the text on the credits. So the angled text. Yes, it was it was so dated and timeless at the same time, which I loved. I agree with timeless. I think that's the correct word to describe a transport. I thought this was a strong work. I think definitely the the investigation of improvisation worked really well playing around with limp bodies works and the way that literally time is being traveled through the space and almost like a limited space because they're so over top one another. I think weight is the biggest player throughout this work honestly throughout all of her works but I'll go into that later but it's interesting to see how multiple bodies are influenced throughout this and I really want to keep jumping to the next point but I'm gonna stop there there's really a big a sense of weight among all the performers in the film and really um no sense of assist or no sense of illusion that these people are anything other than just people. And it's important to uh, consider, again, the dance scene that Amy was coming out of. So this was, again, 1960s New York. And um, postmodern dance has really taken a hold of the city and really has permeated through the lines of many in, um, in the movement world. So you can see that there's a sort of rejection of sort of this virtuosic notion of of dance and sort of like going into a more favoring a more pedestrian mode of dance. However, something that's very interesting or something that's a departure from the postmodern movement is that there really is. So I'm kind of going to go back to like what the No Manifesto says, and I don't want to read the entire manifesto. And by the way, Yvonne Rayner, who wrote this manifesto, has actually actually came out with a counter manifesto, sort of going line by line saying, well, OK, maybe maybe not all the time, but but there are a few points like no to virtuosity, no to transformations and magic and make believe, no to the heroic, no to the anti-heroic, no to seduction or the spectator by the wiles of the performer and no to moving or being moved. And there's a lot of Amy Greenfield's films that go against this manifesto. First of all, I think she would completely object to this idea of anyone not being transformed over the course of the film. I think that there is a sense of transformation inherent to all the work that we see. And I think that the next film element does demonstrate that in a way. So. Before we talk about Element, I think that it's important to know that there have been, I know as dance film curators, there are a lot of films that borrow from Element in a way. Like sometimes you'll see in submissions, there's every year reliably there's someone who is rolling in mud. <laughs> so yeah, so if you're looking at this film from a denotative perspective, it's just, okay, 10 minutes of someone who's rolling in mud. But the way that this film is captured and specifically the way that this film was made really set a standard for not only Greenfield's work, but set a standard for a lot of particularly female driven work over the next few decades. So once again, this film is a, a 10 minute film of a nude body that is rolling and almost struggling in mud. 
And something that's important to know about this film is that the performer is Amy Greenfield herself. And she is directing the camera. And this is actually a theme in the 70s. A lot of women were starting to reconceptualize what the female gaze could be or what the female body, what the nude female body especially, could look on camera from a woman's perspective. And there's a ton of artists who are working along these lines, like Carolee Schneeman is one, um, Francesca Woodman, Yoko Ono as well, um, which, by the way, let's elevate Yoko Ono away from being a Beatles sidekick here. <laughs> so anyways, um, this is a one of the, I believe this was the first collaboration that Amy had with Hilary Harris, who, uh, again, was the um, cinematographer behind Nine Variations on a Dance Theme. And even though he is the camera behind, like, behind this picture, he's the one capturing this picture, there was a meticulous rehearsal process where Amy was very, very insistent about the ways that her body be captured on camera. And in a way, you can't really separate the camera from the action either. I mean, literally, because you see the camera getting splattered with mud. But taking a look at this film, uh, what kinds of differences do you see from Hillary Harris's work in Nine Variations versus the camera work that he does here? This word is so overused. I'm sorry, but here it is. Ready? Raw. <laughs> I think that's a huge difference. And that's just part of taking the camera at different levels and taking it out into the outside world, outside of the studio. It's part of the subject being naked. Even though I know that's not the camera, but it just kind of changes the feeling of the camera. Um, yeah, that would probably be my my quick one word, but really a hundred word response. Raw. I feel that this one, he has actually more limitations than he did in the dance space. I mean, in the studio, he had more room to move around around the dancer. I mean, I be, both films here were centrally focused on the body itself. But in this case, I mean, he isn't being, he's actually being directed to take parts of the body and watch them and also be standing in a slippery sinking thing of mud with the dancer where I mean at this case both the dancer and the cinematographer are struggling together to show a point of what is happening in the gravity of space yeah that's a that's a great observation like just having the and sort of we talk about hierarchy a lot and sort of like hierarchy of roles and elements. And and we're talking about a film where Amy is in a way embodying two different tiers of hierarchy with Hillary in the middle as the cinematographer. But but yeah, in a way, this sort of levels the playing field as far as, you know, performer, director, cinematographer are on the same on the same plane and experiencing the same struggle. And there's a similar leveling of this field going on with the film Tides, which came out um, a little over 10 years later, actually. So in this film, we see Amy in the water and almost being like shoved around by the water, really, really being controlled by the strength of these tides. And again, we see Harris's camera getting very close to the action. Though something that must be mentioned was that when 
Amy Greenfield actually applied for funding for this film and applied for funding to have a casing for the camera and did not get that funding. Though, I mean, I've been on underwater photo shoots and um, that is it's a terrifying moment when the camera goes under for the first time. <laughs> That's stressful. I think I OK, I have done it once, but I would never do it again. <laughs> but this is but this film actually takes a slightly different approach than Element does. First of all, it has sound. So you can actually hear like the the violence of the waves in a way. But it also warps perspective and warps time in a way. So there comes a point about halfway through where we notice that the waves maybe aren't moving quite as they should be. And in that moment, the film is actually being reversed. The movement of the waves is actually being re- in reverse. So there's a suspension of time going on in a way. And we also notice that the camera is taking different orientations. So in some places, it looks like it looks like Greenfield is suspended in some ways. Instead of her being pulled under the tide, it almost looks like she's going over it in a way. Which is part of the investigation of actually taking a dance and putting it on film and playing with the editing is that you can't have those sort of manipulations because she wouldn't be able to do that live at all. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can't do any of these films, I mean, live at all. Just can you imagine just trying to bring a bunch of mud into a space and then trying to recreate that? And um, and proximity makes a huge, huge difference as well. And once again, I know that um, you can't really talk about Amy Greenfield without talking about the use of the nude form. But her intention was to have the camera almost be neutral in a way or like trying to find ways to present the nude form in a neutral fashion. And one of her techniques was to show the entire body nude rather than showing selective parts of the body nude with the idea that instead of the eye being drawn to one part of the body, then it sees the entire body as an organism in a way. That is literally objectification, right? When we're talking about healthy body image and portrayals of the body and objectification, a lot of the times when we focus on a specific part of the body, um, and obviously I'm not saying that every instance of that is objectification, but it is a tendency towards objectification when you're focusing on those smaller areas in a very specific way or even fetishization, to be honest. Right, right. Where I feel that also, I don't know, from my experience of watching this, I felt there, I wasn't thinking of fetishizing or objectifying the body at all, but there were parts of it where I felt we were focused in her breasts, focused in her butt. I mean, it's okay. It's fine. It's the body, but it did make me think of the female form of what it is and what it's given to her or given to the earth. And then I had to think back of like, back to our episode, you know, how does the male body work in this, in this perspective where that would be a, I don't know, it could work similarly, but maybe it's just that time where we get a little bit more, uh, earthy with the use of the body and in that manifesto of like bodies in space 
but it was just definitely interesting, I guess, from my perspective of someone who is a millennial who has watched a lot of saturated digital form where you look back and you're like, well, you know, how does this apply to, to, to today? You know, it's, it's totally, I don't want to say apples and oranges, but maybe clementines and oranges, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find it hard to imagine. I understand the intention is for a neutral camera, but the viewers are not neutral. And I think that's why it's important to have context for these films. But also I'm thinking, how would this be different in a younger body, an older body, a bigger body, a smaller body, a male body, a female body? Like, I feel like if this was a completely nude male, it would be so different because, and this is kind of getting more into the the other film you're going to talk about today, but like seeing women scantily clad is so normalized and we're so desensitized to it that it's not really that much farther across the line to see a fully naked woman. And I think that's probably just my bias because I am a female. (laughs) But like, I truly feel like in the culture, we see so many more examples of nearly to completely nude females compared to male bodies. So it just has a different weight to it when you're watching it. Understanding their audience and understanding that maybe the only time they see full nudity is usually not in an artistic context is certainly something people need to keep in mind. And some people might say, oh, you know, we're just presenting the body as it is. But society, for better or for worse, has created sort of this construction of the nude body. And also, um, this is worth noting that when um, these films were put on YouTube, they were removed from YouTube for violating community standards because according to I I don't know whatever algorithm or whatever reporting process YouTube equated Amy Greenfield's films with pornography essentially and uh, once again equating the just the notion of a nude body with that of something that's inherently pornographic I mean it's funny to say with the with it being censored on YouTube opposed to Vimeo. I mean, Vimeo has a very much larger acceptance rate of nudity and they mark it as mature. But I mean, looking at Tides as its own, I mean, how many Sports Illustrated shoots that we could compare this to as like a woman naked on the beach, rolling around, smiling, appreciating what is around her. I mean, I'm not saying that Tides alone gave that kind of vibe, but, you know, to whomever in another place could see it that way. And I mean, YouTube is much more saturated with that kind of content where it's borderline, where Vimeo it's always served as an artistic platform where that stuff is celebrated, but even that in its own can get so saturated that it cancels itself out and it does become something that is not artistic in that nature. Vimeo is definitely more highbrow and has that different user base and different um, people that have the accounts, but people that are watching I feel like part of why YouTube is probably more strict is that 
they're trying to be more for everybody, even though like YouTube kids is a nightmare and they're just it's just material churned up by algorithms. It's it's really strange, but I feel like they want to get rid of those obvious red flags that are not going to be appropriate for a general audience in a way that Vimeo maybe doesn't mind as much because they honestly don't have the same volume of a certain tier of content. Though I do want to note that having a big mature notice right next to the name of your film is going to immediately frame the film in a different way than maybe you intend. That's true. It's like the explicit label on any kind of musical album. But yeah, but anyways, uh, Amy Greenfield has a huge, huge uh, filmography and uh, one that spans over five decades, really. Um, I think the last film she made was in the mid 2000s, or at least one of the last films she's credited with was in the mid 2000s. But she also experienced uh, experimented with hologram technology in the 1970s and uh, directed a feature length film uh, over the course of five years in the late 80s. But to me, one of her biggest contributions to the world of dance film, and to me, it's one that's very resonant today, is the work that she did with Film Dance 1890s to 1983. So this was an event um, slash catalog that was curated by Amy Greenfield, as well as another dance media artist, Elaine Sumners. Now, again, Elaine Sumners might beg another episode on her because she has a um, you, you wouldn't see projections in performance nowadays as often if it weren't for her. So basically, this was a two-week event that featured over 100 films spanned um, and sourced from almost 100 years of film. So basically from the beginning of film. And this catalog was really uh, presented in an interesting way because not only did it include like a curator statement from Amy Greenfield herself, but it also included statements from dozens of other dance and dance film practitioners of the time. And she asked these practitioners without much background as to um, how to how to frame their responses, just asking what, you know, what dance film means to them. And you really get, you get a wide range of different answers. Like there's like at least one that says like dance should not be captured on film. That's like a poor, poor substitute. What this says to me is that Sometimes, like, you'll have artists who create work and really want to center themselves and their process and their mode of creating work as the mode of creating that work. But to me, what Amy Greenfield was doing here was she was really trying to grow the field by opening up the field. That she was really trying to, really trying to stimulate more thought about it and more, more engagement with it and really trying to source lots of different perspectives behind it. I have to say, Claire, you found in the San Francisco Public Library the program for this festival. I did. <laughs> that was our our kind of window into seeing what was in it. And it was really fascinating to see how much it has in common with like a contemporary festival program. Like you had all those different elements. And I just want to like quote the one part of her of her opening letter or statement at the beginning um, talking about the artist statements where she says the artists who responded to the invitation to write have made statements either on their own films or on their theories of film dance in setting down their thoughts they further help to articulate the varying and changing nature of film dance and it's crazy how much has still not changed and how people are still so motivated by that 
investigation and that exploration that is continuing to vary and change and evolve as technology changes and our perspectives change. So I just definitely got chills when I read that page of the program. I think I've read this before, this program before. Um, when I took the Screen Ant Certificate um, with Ellen Bromberg, she, I believe, gave this to us because I remember the, that cover and reading some of the language and the photography used. So it was like a night I didn't realize I didn't make that connection to Amy at all when, um, you know, back then I just didn't realize I didn't really know who Amy was. And reading this again, I mean, it definitely put it myself, put this in a different light and understand where she's coming from. I mean, also just the whole, the whole timeline that you have given us um, at the beginning of the show definitely aligned a lot more of what she is trying to deliver as a dance film artist and educator. Yeah. And well, first of all, shout out to Ellen Bromberg for um, providing this to the students, because this is, um, again, not a an easy book to find. And but I think it raises a lot of issues with, again, a lot of issues with dance and a lot of issues with dance film in general, is that a lot of this information, which is incredibly valuable, and a lot of these statements, which are incredibly valuable, are just not accessible. It's very, again, very difficult to find information about Amy Greenfield, especially if you're not in, in an academic circle. And a lot of that has to do with the sheer fact that preserving media didn't exactly become a thing until the mid-70s. I, as a, I, Many of you guys know I'm a huge science fiction fan and I'm a huge classic Doctor Who fan as well. And there are at least a dozen episodes of Doctor Who that do not exist anymore because the BBC thought it would be okay to record over tapes of shows. And I think that access is a big issue when it comes to dance, well, to dance film in general, and specifically when it comes to finding a community of dance filmmakers. I think the technological age has connected people to an incredible degree. And I think that a lot of the value we see in a wider dance film community is value that we're finding now when we're connecting with people over Zoom. But unless you live close to a major metropolitan area or you have access to some very specialized books, it's hard to really show the breadth of this field and show the breadth of what people have done in the past. A solution, what are solutions to that? I don't know. I think that nowadays everything is you know, any, anything that can be recorded is there forever. But when it comes to looking through what precedents have already been set, I think it's really difficult, still really difficult to do that. Well, I think there's there is the issue of ownership and there might be people that like, for example, we're talking about this on this podcast and that's fine. But we wouldn't be able to, like, hand out copies of this without permission. So there's certain limits on, like, intellectual property that make specific educational or networking opportunities that much more valuable because it is that safe bubble of like everyone here has paid to participate or is registered or we know who's in the room and there's some control over the circulation of these materials. And the other part of it is like, is Amy Greenfield, I, I hate to ask, like, is she still alive? 
I believe she is. Um, I do. I did see her on Facebook, um, or at least I haven't like seen any notices to the contrary. El- Elaine Sumner's unfortunately passed away maybe four years ago. I'm someone who's very much alive still, um, but I feel like when I don't go on social media for a week that I have died to the rest of the world. <laughs> so it's it's such an unfortunate part right. of the creative economy today that if you're not like on Instagram or you don't have a Facebook page, then you're you get kind of out of circulation, which is so sad because that's not even what those platforms were supposed to be in the first place. Right, right. I mean, in context of going back to like the festivals and like having that shared to the public. Yeah, I mean, for today, I mean, it's just so different regarding what is available to the public. I mean, with the internet, with just the amount of films that people are making. I mean, back then it was like, do you even own a camera? It's so much more expensive. And most of these um, pioneers in the dance film world, they were making work that was like, I don't want to say it's just highbrow, but yeah, it's educational highbrow today. Where today, like where in the now, we have much more varieties of movement. There, the time of modern dance was then, and people were experimenting a lot more. Where nowadays, it's almost socially experimental. Where it's like, how many likes can I get? This it's just. A totally different world and how do we preserve that is just through education itself and unfortunately with that you only get that with schools and it's like why we make this podcast in the first place how do you know like we want to get the word out and share this for free and not that many schools have screen dance or dance film programs. I didn't have anything like that. Um, I lived in Vancouver, British Columbia until about five years ago. And I studied film. I studied cinema at school and I studied dance and was a dance professional and have done a lot of my own um, continuing education outside of a certificate program. But I certainly couldn't afford to go to school out of the country or even across the country. And I don't even think there are any current screen dance or dance film programs in Canada at all. I would say there's probably a heavy concentration in the U.S., um, particular regions of the U.S. And then where else do you all know of, like, actual programs? I would guess, like, the U.K., maybe Germany, France, Spain. The U.K. has, um, the place has a screen dance, a master's in screen dance. And I think that there was talk of one being developed in Portugal at one point. But as far as just zooming, zoning in on dance film, those programs are very few and far between, which in some cases is actually not necessarily the worst thing ever. I mean, yes, it helps to have an understanding of where this form has been and where and kind of speculate on where it can go. But a lot of the beauty of the form is that it is very much one that's molded by independent artists and one specifically molded by dancers who are usually experimenting with a form. There's this great quote from uh, Douglas Rosenberg um, about um, kind of surveying the the breadth of uh, some of the luminaries of dance film. It notes that 
their work should not be construed as only a nostalgic looking back to the roots of screen dance, but as a model for engagement and activism. And to me, that's the precedent that Amy Greenfield set. And that is a precedent that has been followed by many and none more so than the two brilliant people I see before me. Each of you really embody the totality of what, you know, a mode of dance film practice can look like. You both have made dance film in the past. You both have totally different models and but totally uh, distinct models of curation. Like Jen, I know you have a very um, distinct model of tying in um, tying in education and tying in representation to the work that you do. And Hannah, you were you know doing the whole online screen dance game way before all these COVID people were. <laughs> so yeah, both of you really embody what it means to to wear the hat of a dance film artist, and that is the hat that. Amy Greenfield, the likes of Amy Greenfield and Maya Darren wore way back in the day. People who were not just not only made films, but also really took a step back and thought like where, how, how do my films fit in and how does this form fit in to the rest of the world? Thank you. That is honestly like such a huge compliment. I just feel it feels good to be seen. Like, I don't care if my hair looks good today. Like, I don't care. You know, th- those are the kind of um, observations that that mean a lot. So thanks, Claire. And also, you're a great example of that as well. I mean, my God, you are just like so intellectual and so, um, so well. Like, it's not even like you just have this encyclopedic knowledge. Like, you also know where to find things and just you're... That's why when we had the... Like, when Hannah was like, I want to do this podcast. Let's do this podcast. I was like, we... Yes, ma'am, but Claire is coming with because you're just a force. And also, you're a dance filmmaker, and we might be seeing some of your stuff online pretty soon, part of uh, Dance Cinema's program. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so. Thank you for the kind words. (laughs) It's all intersectionality and how we could, you know, collide mediums i i learned back in when i took my independent cinema class about i don't know exactly the words of it but it's just how do we take old media or old ideas and transform it into the new form i mean look at the ipod that's a digital digital way of listening to music and kindle or nook you know, that's an e-reader. How do we take the digital to the uh, the old to the digital? I mean, I think moving forward, we're learning is just how do we intersect new ideas, but in a familiar form that people could engage in. And I think that's the most important way of thinking as in any kind of artist, you know, not just, uh, I'm not saying everything needs to be digital. It's just like, how do we put two and two together right it's like oral history has a new meaning now like there's traditional oral history where you can literally share stories and pass things down person to person but increasingly technology is a great tool to have that digital history or that technological history um, in a way that oral history wouldn't be able to be sustained is it less personal sure is it more scalable yes 
yeah, but it really does you know, stress the importance of using the totality of what you have in, in front of you in the world in order to um, in order to construct something that is is useful and something that is is resonant. So with all the um, the hats that Amy Greenfield wore in her career as a filmmaker, as a writer, as a, a curator, there is a really interesting sense of authorship in a way that of the work that she's doing that spans all across all of these different um, different facets of her career. Um, obviously, it's easy to see with regards to the film work because essentially she is the sole director and the sole performer in the work. And so her films, I guess, without the the middle person of Hillary Harris are interesting looks when it comes to through the lens of auteur theory, as well as the sort of aesthetic that she was or the, the aesthetic and the visual language that she was experimenting with at the time. So going into auteur theory, for those who don't know, auteur theory is basically a style that the auteur, in this case, the director, the artist, has set for themselves. So if we take the example of Picasso, we can think, okay, there's cubism, there's geometric shapes, there's pops of very bright colors. We can look at Van Gogh with his way of making work it's very loose yet very together expressive paint strokes very thick paint strokes and then in film you know if you're watching a marty scorsese film you're going to expect a lot of violence some kind of italian flavor and probably joe pesci or robert de niro of some kind Uh, and then there's wes anderson where you're thinking of center cuts uh very beautiful Uh, but simple, muted color palette and then Bill Murray playing a serious character. You know, these are all kinds of auteur styles. You get what you're expecting. As if you're going to a restaurant, you're going to expect you can get a pizza and a spaghetti and a calzone. Mm -hmm. I love that description, Hannah, not just like the the food part, but the the specific directors and even how you... Um, describe those different aspects because it does get down to not just the aesthetic, but also what sort of subject matter or who who rec- is a recurring character in these films. Like we start to identify groups of aesthetics or groups of locations or just certain themes and certain values, like not just in what we're watching, but in what format is it? Who is involved? Um, is it highbrow, lowbrow? Is it meant to be accessible or not? Like, there's just so many um, levels you can sort of tweak there. But when they're tweaked the right way with not too much variation, you can definitely tell that you've got someone who's got a body of work that's a little more cohesive. Exactly. And I think that for this, I mean, Amy Greenfield definitely, through her work, shows altourism through the movement, through the camera, through the edit. And obviously the body itself, because it's her most of the time. Yeah. And the environment she's in as well. There really is a sense of, you know, a body either versus or body, you know, in harmony with the environment, too. And like you can see that there's even in something like Element where she's um, 
pushing herself out of the mud, there are varying states of resistance and varying states of sort of you know, letting go in a way as well. So a lot of our work really centered around that. And maybe it's not easy to read upon viewing it, but a lot of the work does center around this sense of mortality and almost a sense of the fallibility of the body. I know we were discussing in the episode last week that nudity can be read in many different ways, but one of those readings is a sense of you know vulnerability and exposure. But in contrast to some of the films, um, I'm thinking specifically personal space, where that leads to a more delicate sense of movement quality. With Greenfield's work, there's almost like a combative quality of her with with the elements. Like there's sort of like a caution to the wind feeling of the movement that she's doing. And it really is that the body really moving and really creating this uh, kinest- kinetic sense throughout these elements that really, um, really marks her work. Like one word that I thought of right away, just think, watching all these works was gravity. I said that earlier. I think gravity plays a huge part in this and what it is in the space. I mean, looking at transport, they're in a very hilly kind of loose gravel environment where they're struggling to lift each other up and their limp bodies against this loose kind of dirt. And then going into element in the mud, I mean... You have this mix of struggle and then kind of going with it, going with the mud itself because it's so slippery, it's loose, and it's fall right into it and tied as well with the water moving. One thing that I picked up from one of the articles that you have given us, Claire, from Women Experimental Cinema, written by her husband, Robert A. Haller, she writes, This is an explicit declaration to let the body become itself, itself fully. And I think that's exactly what she's doing. It's just letting the body move. You see that, obviously, through her editing as well. It's there. I felt that her use of gravity and time could be cut down a bit, but I could see that she is playing with that idea of letting the body just be itself fully. Like the quote is saying, you know, it's just letting it move, letting it breathe, let it be. Like another thing with her work besides gravity, I would also say, I mean, you said the death versus reborn kind of, themes there and I definitely agree with the death themes I'm saying rebirth a little bit through element and tides as they are kind of like a little double feature there emulating one another I mean when you think of these animals when they specifically mammals I'm gonna say like maybe horses and cows it's bonkers how something so young when born it can almost stand right away within like, I don't know, 30 minutes. And where the human body itself, it takes, I don't know, like a year, a year and a half for it to finally gain that consciousness of like, oh, my legs, I can stand. Where in a mammal, 
where the brain is totally different. It could stand right away. In this case, the rebirth there in Element is that struggle of learning how to stand up in that way. You know, you're covered in this soot that you were living in for X amount of months and learning how to be a part of this world, how to, I don't know, defend for yourself, in this case, standing and existing outside of the womb. Whereas like tides, the rebirth in the sense is how we talked about in our last episode talking about gender, you know, water is rebirth, reborn, cleansing of the body. It, where I think nudity definitely suits this in all because of that sense that we're being rejuvenated by earth itself. It definitely gives it a more like godly approach. I mean, I wouldn't say like, I wouldn't say this was like a celebration kind of film because yet she is like moving through the water and water is being enveloped in her as it's reversing and being swelled in. But yeah, it has that kind of mystical feel that, you know, how to live within the moment. In this case, the moment is being in water, being cleansed. And I find it also very interesting in that sense that, like, because she didn't get that waterproof casing, it would be a totally different film, you know? You're playing with so much more material there that you wouldn't... That maybe that she wouldn't have focused on those reversal waves that totally create a whole new sense of letting the body live in that moment. I don't know. I think it, I think work is much more inventive when there's limitation. I agree. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Hillary Harris has to be a lot more careful with the camera that he's using. And especially if it's got film in it, you got to be really careful with it. But going going back to Hillary Harris and uh, her collab her collaboration with him, the two are very similar in that way. I mean, there's this build of editing and choreography between edit and movement and environment, and I definitely see the similar similarities there. Which, it, in this case, yes, the, I feel that the camera is much more directed and still and doesn't have that free motion like Nine Variations did, where you're moving around the dancer and just kind of going in and out of the clothing there. In this case, I mean the nude body. But in a way, I felt that uh, Greenfield's editing is much more slower paced. You, there's a slower build to it than what we would see in Harris's work, where I felt there's a lot more. There was a build, but there's like an obvious build. Where here it's like we see maybe the cameras moving more, but the edits they don't go as faster as we would say when we when we think of like a climax in a dance film things are getting you know quicker faster uh, more build in it the build here is slower and definitely letting that body just move for what it is so yeah that's a great example of what um 
Amy had a term that I'm totally paraphrasing here. That's sort of like a third, like a third level where um, the dance exists entirely in the film and all the elements um, are, you know, really contributing to the film as the dance. And I mean, obviously my Darren had a very similar take on that, but it really is the sense where she's building a rhythm that's totally unique to, to the work itself. That's not really a prescribed technique um, that's you know taken from, from a previous source. It really is creating this new I- idea of choreography through, through the edit and through the filming as well. And I think importantly, not directed completely by music, which I know in in my films and even like when I, I do like a supercut every year, it's very much driven by music. Like that's just my style, but that's my background. And I know that when we see these more academic background dance films, like automatically the sound score is different. And that's totally what you're saying right there. So, yeah, that is just a brief overview of uh, the work of Amy Greenfield. Um, We will obviously be linking all these films in the show notes. And I will also be linking some of the source material as well if you want to um, seek out and learn more about her. If Maya Darren was the mother of dance film, then Amy Greenfield is sort of a godmother in a way. So maybe she didn't, you know, completely plant the seed for this idea of what what we know of and what we practice and what we watch today, but she's definitely responsible for, um, for keeping it alive and really opening up the conversation about it. And as a, um, as a creator, as a writer, as a curator, she's really set um, a precedent for the way a lot of people practice this form today. Check her out. Again, links are in the show notes. And always, always, always remember that there is still so much history that is still left to be uncovered. And um, we just look forward to the days we can see that as well. So as we love to do on this show, we want to point you to more resources, more events, more things that you can check out. So we've got an online and a live festival that we're sharing with you that are coming up soon. So the first one is Monday, November 2nd. It's an online festival hosted by Danza in Foco, Festival Internacional de Video y Danza. This is based in Rio de Janeiro, but as I said, it's going to be online this year. And our second event is the fifth annual Dance on Screen Festival happening live in Graz, Austria, November 20th to 21st. If you have a dance event, make sure that you are following us and you email us so we can include you in these announcements. All the information for these events will be linked in the show notes. Well, that's our show. Thank you, Claire, for introducing us to Amy Greenfield. We plan to do more dance film history episodes. So if you're listening and there's someone you think that we should feature next, shoot us an email at frameformpodcast at gmail.com. If you like what you're hearing, give us a review to help others find the show and feel free to share a post on Instagram at frameformpod. That's frameform, P-O-D. Next week, we're talking about how internet made the video star. So come see what that's about next Wednesday on Frameform. Frameform is a production of Rixie, hosted by me, Hannah Weber, Claire Schweitzer, and Jen Wright. Edited and mixed by myself and Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>